This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing? I'm great, Max. I'm great. A little warm, like everyone else, I suspect. And yeah. uh, But apart from that, uh, great, great. You? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a little warm, but hopefully, you know, we can figure a way. But who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, today uh, we've got Steve Bennington. And Steve, well, Steve started like as a scientist and working on uh, spectrometers and working for the Science Council and working for an energy company where he's a managing director. Uh, then he worked in filtration, lots and lots of different uh, types of experiences all over the place, really, before he became the CEO of Q5D. And Q5D is doing something that is, on the one hand, ridiculously obvious. And on the other hand, I was quite surprised that I was really surprised no one had done it earlier, and I was really surprised they were doing it. So essentially, if you know, if you have a car or an aircraft or even like a 3D printer, you've got a whole wiring harness. And these things are super complicated. There are a whole bunch of wires and connectors, and they're all typically kind of strung together in, well, kind of like nearshoring countries. Like if you're a Volkswagen, your wiring harnesses would be made in Ukraine or in, in uh, Czech Republic or something like that. And this 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 is a manual task, and it you know it doesn't happen at the plant in in Germany, for example. So Q5D is essentially combining 3D printing with a bunch of different tools in one kind of production cell to automate the printing of conductors, wires, connectors, and polymer parts in one go. So the idea is to get a a wiring harness that's kind of more or less automated. So I think I thought that was super super exciting. So that's why uh, we asked Steve uh, to be uh, part of the show today. So welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you very much. Well, I think we just sign off there. You did a fine job. <laughs> We're all done. All right. That's great. Great. Good, good pod, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go home. <laughs> so, so first of all, like, uh, uh, how did you get? How did this company get started? Because I think it's a it's like a joint venture or something. It's like a little bit different than than a usual kind of startup, right? Yeah, kind of. It, it was spun out of two uh, UK tech companies. So one of them, MSolve, was an expert at the printed electronics and laser. Uh, sort of micro machining and materials processing, and then the other one was uh, Cell UK, which made 3D printers. You know the small 3D printers uh, that they were selling into the UK market into uh, largely uh, schools and things like that. They did they were doing quite well uh, under the Robox brand. Someone some. The listeners might know, know that. Brand. I know those guys. I know. Yeah, those there we guys. go. <laughs> they tried to do the nozzle switching. They did try to do the nozzle switching. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So they, they have the like... dual nozzles. Yeah, lots of good tech in there. Yeah, um, yeah. but they uh, we've now uh, we've now sort of uh, taken on all their staff. There's no one left in that business. We've uh, pulled oh. them all across into Q5D. Um, okay, because I thought that was a really cool company. I thought I, thought I really liked them. Yeah, I, I think the problem was that um, they never took in venture capital money. So they were not able to grow really quickly. They were all trying to do it organically. And they did a fine, fine job. Um, uh, but they you know, were never going to go like stratospheric like some of the other uh, you know, 3D printer companies that, that, that took in a lot of uh, uh, investor money. And um, and then I think the market has kind of switched into more industrial. I mean, that's where the big bucks are now. That's where the growth seems to be. So industrial 3D printing rather than, you know, that all that hype about everyone's going to have one in their own home, et cetera. That's what we were looking for. We were looking for, or at least uh, Chris, my co-founder, that sort of technical uh, brains behind it all, was looking for the next big thing in uh, in 3D printing. And uh, and that's when he, he lighted on the idea of, of 
putting in conductors into a into the 3D printer using the same kind of technology and ideas, but you know making something functional. But so, what are you using for speaking of conductive? What are you using for conductive material? Because oftentimes the 3D printing conductive materials tend to be very limited in like how much amps you can put through them or what's the maximum voltage or are you working around that somehow? We use wires. I mean, if you're going to go into the aerospace industry... Oh my or goodness, the, or, you use actual how wires! Is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, we... So you, I mean, yeah, the machine has three sort of different end effectors that it can pick up. It's more a hybrid manufacturing platform than just an additive platform. So it can pick up end effectors that do three different things. One is the kind of classic FDM printing that everyone knows and loves. And then the other one is it lays down wires. So it has a you know wire spool and it can lay down a wide variety of gauges and types and then terminate them, you know, put the plugs on the end. And then the other set of end effectors do this very clever 3D printing of, not 3D printing, but spraying down and, uh, and laser uh, machining to create a conductive tracks like a, a three-dimensional PCB board. And it's those three tech that we put onto this big five-axis platform for you to be able to functionalize whatever bit of kit you want to throw in the machine. Okay, so well, that just makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I love the wire thing. Like, why don't we? Yeah, right. Like, yeah. Cool why would you do anything else? I mean, is, are they, and, yeah, and, and if, we, if you're going to qualify, because all the wires are qualified for a particular market. So if you're going to go into the aerospace market, they will want a particular wire with a particular kind, kind of uh, insulation on it so it doesn't catch fire. If you're going to go into the automotive market, they're all pre-qualified. So why make it difficult for yourself, you know, in the reg on the regulatory side? Just make it, just use wire. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I just am um, <laughs> glad that you used the, the most obvious solution. <laughs> I mean, I feel a bit of a, a fraud here because, um, you know, we don't do that much 3D, you know, of the actual classic FDM 3D printing because we realized quite early on that it's it's quite expensive and slow. I mean, uh, um, so, you know, we, we wanted to compete in the mass market. We didn't want to be an, an additive company that was um, doing high value, low volume manufacturing. We want to do high volume manufacturing, competing with that, you know, those manual processes out in Mexico and the Far East. And if we started to, to try and print entire products with the FDM printer, it's just too slow. So we take existing components, something that's injection molded or is a composite panel, whatever it might be, throw that in the machine, and then we just use the FDM head to modify it. So if you need a wire trap to push the wires into, or you've laid the wires down and you now need to protect them or to, to, to secure them in place, use the FDM to do that. So keep the volume of the FDM printing as low as possible so that the speed on the machine is as high as possible and keep the part cost really low because that's what counts. This is a, this is a, a, you know, a margins business. You need to get the parts in and out of the machine as fast as you can. So yeah, so I'm a, like I said, I'm a bit of a fraud in that we do do FDM printing and we use all the techniques of additive manufacture to control the wire deposition and the, and the, and the, uh, the printed electronics you know, the same kind of software and the rest. But really, we try and keep the FDM printing to an absolute bare minimum. Yeah, but but that makes perfect yeah. sense, right? Like you're, you're, you're trying to eliminate labor cost and the FDM is just doing the labor cost that you're trying to eliminate. You're not trying to eliminate the injection molding aspect of things. No, so, I mean, that, that, those, yeah. those are bulk methods are so cheap, so good. Why would you, right. why would why you, would you try and it? replace them? Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, but that, that's the reason why I'm so interested in this because when at first we thought like 3D printing was going to replace everything, right? Then it was like, well, maybe it's only going to be like making certain parts in a in, as a part of a mass production process. But if we look at um, 
like where 3D printing is really helping, make, changing a, making a big difference in, in businesses and being printed in millions of parts, we see that either it's like the crucial bit in a larger assembly or more complicated device, or it's the entire device, and there's a ton of reasons to use 3D printing. But if we look at how these things are manufactured, it's like a manufacturing cell uh, uh, is increasingly how this is happening. That's, so I like the fact that you guys are using as little as possible additive as opposed to maximizing additive as we're used to do. And also I like the fact that it's kind of a more of a manufacturing cell. It looks like something I could walk around without hurting myself on a factory floor, you know? Yeah, that we tried to build it so that it looked it look at home on a factory floor and it kind of links into all the industry 4.0 stuff that that uh, you'd have on a factory floor. So yeah, it was it's designed to 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 be an industrial process, make millions of parts a year. That's that's the purpose of our you know of this of this particular machine. You know, because the markets are enormous, you know, 200 billion and they're growing so fast, you know, the wiring harness market, because everything's got to be electrified, you know, you and net zero and then, you know, IOT uh, or just straight competition where you're trying to pack as much function into your products as possible. And that always, always needs more wiring. So that so we wanted to be able to make a machine that could take as much of, you know, address as much of that market as as possible. Uh, and that means it has to compete on cost with these low wage economies. And, and you said it right at the beginning, productivity is everything. All the Western economies, uh, well, certainly in the UK, and I think it might be the same in, uh, in America as well, productivity growth has kind of stalled. Uh, for, you know, it has done for a while now. And, uh, you know, the, the key is plowing your, uh, your investment into, into, well, maybe AI as well now, but into automation, trying to take out the, uh, the, the labor costs bring back some of that manufacturing from the, from the Far East and elsewhere and, uh, and compete, you know, head on on cost, um, but then improve the productivity of your manufacturing process. And then that, you know, for me, you know, thinking broadly, that's quality of life. If the more productive your country is, you know, the more productive your manufacturing is, uh, the more you make with less, uh, that means, you know, you, your, your country is, you know, you, you can, you, you know, you're, your taxes go further and everything you know it means that uh, your standard livings can can rise i think it's really important to do this kind of stuff and so we'll talk to a little bit this wire harness market as i actually was privileged enough to spend a couple of days making wire harnesses when i was at uh, uh, ultimaker and this was uh not fun <laughs> i can tell you if somebody's not done this um you know why is it such a huge market and and and, and the assumption of course is it's going to explode to get even bigger because there's more electronics like your dumb cnc machine is going to now come with 10 sensors and stuff right so so the expectation is with electrification and with increased like sensorification of stuff there's going to be more of this present everywhere right that's exactly right yeah um so you know it's, it's growing well, different parts of it growing at different speeds, but overall it's growing at around six percent per year. Uh, so you you know you talk about doubling it in ten years, and then there are other parts of it like the printed electronics part. Um, you know that's growing at twenty twenty five percent a year. It's a huge, huge growth growth area. Um, and I said you you got it right. You know there's there's all this stuff where you're packing more sensors into into everything, um, but then you know it, it you know all your cars. If you look at your an auto, a, a car these days. It's got 60 kilograms of wire in it, you know, 7,000 cut ends, three, three, you know, 3,000 wires. It's a really complex, it's the third most expensive part of your vehicle. But it's the bit that fails the most often as well, apart from airbags, you know, which have got explosives in them. And so, you know, you want the quality to improve uh, and then the wiring loads going up. You know, cars are going electric, you're packing 
ever more sophisticated entertainment systems and driver assistance. And so the wiring load is, is not staying at 60 kilograms. That's just growing up and getting getting bigger and bigger. And it's the same across all, all markets, really. Yeah, exactly. But the interesting thing is like the tech solution is this. I know that people who have been working on this for a really long time is print all the wiring, right? Because it'd be smaller, it's lighter. And then we print the electronic traces and then we have some new thing. And you guys just, no, no, we're going to get a robot to do the wiring. <laughs> I love the different approach. No, well, it's still- the right approach, though, because the, the, there's too many issues and restrictions when you print the wiring. But we have realized that you do save weight because what we also realize is that wiring is um, usually over-specced, over-gauged, because it's got to survive a manual process for manufacture and installation. So you're not going to use really fine, delicate wires for your data links. You're going to, use, you're going to over-gauge that wire, and then you're going to have to over-gauge all the plugs on the end of it. We don't, because each of our wires are fitted onto the surface of your product and then potentially over over printed with more polymer you know they they don't touch each other that you know they they're, they're they're completely protected you can take out quite a lot of weight just on the wire itself and then if you can switch to the printed electronics which we should talk about it's a really quite cool way of doing it switch to the printed electronics you save even more weight uh, and volume so you can pack more function in so you know, you you are saving weight as well, even through our process. We 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 didn't realize that at first when we started going down this route, but as we talk to the wiring harness companies, then that's what they're that's what they're telling us. So for I'll give you an example. We're working with uh, a company that makes uh, airline seats, business class airline seats, and when we did the case study with them, each airline seat has a, a rigid eighty five kilograms. That's what they're allowed to use, uh, and we found that we could take out five kilograms out of that eighty five kilograms. That's pretty substantial amount of weight for it. And if you spread that across all of the cabin furniture in an aircraft, you're talking about hundreds of kilograms that you can save. Is that something they just hadn't considered before, or was the machinery not available? Like that's the, the second big amazing thing is like why hasn't anyone done this before? There is a good reason, and one of it is it's all five axis. And uh, because we have to use five axis because we're printing onto complicated shapes and existing shapes. So we can't use the standard 2D plus type printing. It just won't work. And the five axis stuff has only just started to come on stream. So companies like uh, Siemens and uh, Autodesk and lots of small, interesting companies out there now working on that software. Um, Without that, you just can't control the machine. Um, so we have a we now have a commercial and development li- uh, relationship with with Siemens and use Siemens NX. You know we we're not adverse to uh, to, to the others and we will work with them as well. But Siemens j- jumped in first, so we've, we're just about to do a press release with that with that relationship. But that's the reason why this particular approach hasn't been done before because the software wasn't sophisticated or good enough, and it's still not quite there. There's still a fair bit of development due to get it really polished, but it's good enough now for us to 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 put out our prototypes, uh, which we did in, you know, our first prototype went out in April. And the other thing is with this, I think, okay, in the beginning, in, so you're your co-founder sitting around, you try to commercialize this. I understand that that I could, I see you guys going for an idea to getting a working prototype uh, underway, right? But getting funding for something like this is actually quite difficult, in my estimation, would be quite difficult because they love the whiz bang. We invented a new 3D printing technology thing. And this seems like kind of a systems integration thing that maybe doesn't have a lot of like what they always say, moat and stuff like that, right? Let's talk about the, the print electronics because we have a lot of intellectual property that we've got around that, which is highly unique. So in that one, what we do is we take that, the surface of your product, we spray it with a conductive paste, and then we raster a laser across that surface incredibly quickly. And we just use a, a certain power to lift off 
the ink where you don't want it. And then in other areas, we sort of sinter and cure it. So you can incredibly quickly, you can create a high quality PCB wrapped around uh, the, the surface of your, of your product. And so that we have a lot of intellectual property around that, which we can protect. And that's Sorry, wait, you, everyone excited. Do you still SMTP after that then? Like, are you still using a machine to lay down the components or, or are you saying yes. that you're doing some of the circuitry by burning it and therefore carbonizing it and making it a resistor on some level? No, we haven't got around to that level of sophistication. We, okay, just, make, okay, we, right, we right. just make the PCB <laughs> board. So yeah, the, okay. that's, it's a really interesting pro uh, problem about the SMT. We do have a very simple pick and place, but the SMT is very sophisticated and there are other companies that are very good at that. Uh, and so, yeah, we just started to look at now relationships with uh, with other companies um, to, to develop that part of it. But uh, the, mostly we use the, the printed electronics like you would use a conductive track. So, you know, instead of instead of a wire, sometimes you might just lay down a, a conductive track. Um, and there are other kind of interesting, like antenna, when you, when you want to print an antenna, uh, that works incredibly well. And there are some some interesting sort of meta materials that you can create for filtration of RF and stuff like that, which we're, which we also we also work on. So you're right. It is difficult to get uh, uh, investment. I think it is just generally difficult to get investment for um these, which are not just software. Software has always been seen as something which, you know, it's, it's, it's a low capital cost business and uh, quite quick to market. Whereas businesses like ours, kind of manufacturing businesses, there's only a small subset of venture capital that actually focus on that. Um, it's better than it ever has been in the past, but it, it is means you can only go to a small subset of the of the all of the the big venture capital companies out there. So you do have to work very hard to get to get the uh, the, the the venture money. Actually, we were talking about labor productivity and productivity generally. My, this is kind of like, it's not a theory. It's a thought experiment to really kind of cause a semi-riot in the right crowd. You're just saying that the reason there hasn't been any kind of actual total factor or any kind of productivity growth is actually software. <laughs> because there's been all of the money and all the effort has just been in going into software, and it hasn't actually made us make stuff any better or faster. And that's just a really fun conversation starter with Silicon Valley people. <laughs> well, I, think, I think it probably has, but it's that combination of software and hardware that you need to get. And that, that's what's held us back from this particular version. I can't, I mean, we're not the only ones who are trying to solve the automation of wiring harness problem. There are lots of other companies out there using completely different methodologies. Um, you know, but this particular one, using the additive and the five axis and the, uh, you know, laying wires down onto surfaces, that has been limited by the availability of the complex five axis software. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Okay, and then and so how did you guys kind of get started? How did you go from like you know just having a kind of group of co-founders to becoming more of a going concern? Let's say. Well, it was it was a combination of um, a UK government grant. Um, uh, there's a big aerospace uh, funding body which we got uh, we got a nice big juicy grant from, but we had then to match that with uh, with investment, and we uh, we got our first offer of investment just in 2019, uh, but it was immediately whipped away when COVID started. So that was a bit of a, a painful process. But luckily, the uh, the funding body hung on. And then at the end, uh, so the end of uh, 2020, uh, 2019, rather early 2020, we got our first seed seed funding from an American investor. Um, and then the following year, we got, we got a fairly substantial investment. And that really managed us to gear up you know, so we're we're still a small company. There's uh, sort of 17 of us now, um, and just going out for another another funding round is kind of endless endless cycle of uh, of fundraising. And uh, so, but you know, by this time by this time next year, there'll probably be sort of 25, and then the following year it'll be 50. And you know, that's the kind of 
the rate that we're we're aiming to grow at. Hmm. It's another one of those like this. Is, it's actually kind of funny. Well, it wasn't funny at the time, but this investor backed out last time because. Uh, I was actually tracking like a lot of COVID manufacturing interruptions and some of them we kind of were thinking that they're kind of fake where people were just kind of, you know, they had a temporary problem. They took it in, they made it a longer term problem, then double the price of bicycles, for example. Uh, <laughs> and other ones were, um, we had real problems. We saw that real problems in, in COVID and Ukraine. And one of them was in wire harnessing it during COVID and also during Ukraine. Uh, there was, there's several companies that are making a lot of capital goods of really high, highly intensive stuff that have huge problems because of the wire harnessing market was disrupted for first for COVID and then during the Ukraine war. So it's actually literally, it should have spurred them on to invest uh, in this moment. They should have realized that this could have been a huge impact. And instead it scared them off, which I think is quite interesting. Actually, Yeah. I think what they, what they all did was they, they have their, the companies they've already invested in and they got worried about them. So they kept their money back to invest and support the companies they'd already invested in their existing portfolios. But it didn't take long. A year, a year after that, we were, we were funded and, uh, and often, often running. But you're, you're right about all those kind of black swan events that aren't supposed to happen very often, but seem to be happening fairly regularly. Um, and that is one of the selling points. You're exactly right. If you can, if you can onshore your manufacturing and site the, uh, the the manufacturing close to the the assemblers, you can strip out all that supply chain. You can improve the resilience of your manufacturing. So I think there's all those kind of additional points that are kind of attractive about about automating in this way. You no, know, one of the biggest limitations with doing um, manufacturing, you know, outside of the Far East, is that your your suppliers are so much farther away. Whereas when you're in the Far East, you can easily say, like, I'm missing my screw. The screw factory sends you replacement screws in a cab because that's how close they are. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a big thing that a lot of people don't think about when we think about manufacturing in general. Obviously, people in manufacturing think about it and people outside manufacturing don't tend to think about it. But. Yeah, and, and it also makes it slow for innovation. I mean, if you've got to, um, you know, so you, you've got a long way to go. There's all the, the complications with language. So making a change to your wiring harness can be quite a cumbersome and slow process. Whereas if you can go from a, what we hope, you know, what we're doing, you're going from a design, and this is what we work with Siemens. You've got a CAD design for your thing. You run it through all the computer-aided manufacturing software and then pipe that down to the machine. And then the next day you come in and you've got a part. So all that design cycle can be, can be much, much quicker. Um, whereas, you know, if, you're, if you've got a, if you're, your design cycle requires you to, 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 you know, to get a part back from, from, a, from the Far East or Mexico, it's going to take ages. Um, so all of, that, all of that's kind of powerful as well, I think. I have a really random question that is really weird, but so if I have a golf, right, we, we, we mentioned this before that your golf might be unique, right? There could be 5 million golfs out there, but every single one of them conceivably, or not every single one of them, yours could be completely unique. But what does that mean with the wiring harnesses? To what extent are they customized in this kind of mass customization scenario? If I have this, the sunroof, right, I would have, you need the connectors for the sunroof, right? Or does every golf have them? Or, or, you know, to what degree is that customized? according to what options you take if it's like a powered option do you know even because uh, yeah they, they, you you have the complete wiring harness and they just switch bits off so yeah it's wasteful uh and but you know that's that's the only way they can do it at the moment and you're right the mass customization could be quite an interesting option so the you know the car could be designed exactly with the with the uh, the wiring that it, it needs so, so, wait a minute. so if so if there's if there's let's say there's ten million Camrys on the road, right? That means that every ten million of them have the moonroof, whatever wiring. Yep. 
Yep. Even if only exactly 1 million right. people get the, it's completely logical, right? But it's also really stupid. But of course it works like this, but it's super stupid. It really is dumb. And it's, it's even worse when you go, see, when we, we're working with the, uh, with the, I go back to the case study with the, with the business class seating in the aircraft, they might make 10,000 of a particular type of seat, but every airline wants it customized for their own particular function. And then every seat is subtly different. You know, you've got ones on the left, ones on the right, and then the aircraft gets narrow as you get to the front. And so they, they're only making a very small number of each seat and every wiring harness is sort of subtly different. And so they tend to make it all by hand. It's a very sort of coach built, um, uh, expensive process. And so that kind of thing, it would be ideal for this kind of additive process where all you have to do is change the, uh, you know, your, your code that you squirt down to the, uh, to the, to the manufacturing cell. And, and who are the people, is it aerospace is that, or who are the people who are really interested in this at the moment? We like to work because there's no way we can address all this enormous number of markets. I mean, we're just only a little company. So we like to work with the big wiring harness companies. So they're not exactly brand names, but they're companies uh, who we're, we're talking to at the moment are companies like Yazaki. That's the world's largest wiring harness manufacturer. Leacorp, uh, Sanmina, Johnson Electric, these kind of, you know, we're trying to get into Delphi. So there are about 15, 20 global wiring harness manufacturers and that's basically all we need to you know to be a billion dollar company if we sell to them uh so so we don't try and address you know the airspace market or the you know the uh, the washing machine market we just sell machines and software and services into into the uh, the wiring the big wiring harness manufacturers and let them use them to to, to make stuff for for all these uh, these different verticals with there's Changes, obviously, in the wind, so to speak, coming along with cars, especially. Given that you guys can lay down tracks and PCBs and um, antennas, can you therefore also lay down wireless power systems for these newer cars that are concept cars that are coming out in the future where the seat can move all over the place because it's an automated car, let's say, uh, but you still need power in that seat and you don't want wires necessarily going to that seat anymore? Is that is this a capability of this technology in the future, you think? We have a lot of people who are interested in 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 wires, you know, from the defense side all the way through to uh, to, to to just mobile phones, uh, so to, to making antennas rather, um, uh, and even just very simple near field antennas that you might reuse to read your credit card. I mean, that that actually seems to be a, an interesting niche uh, for us. Whether they will ever ever allow that in a car, I mean, they've been talking about wireless communication for data across from one end of the car to the other for ages. And I think even some of the standards have been written, but so far the car companies have been very cautious about adopting it. But who knows? If they if they wanted what, it, what we, about would, we would be there. I'm wireless yeah. power systems. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's further out there. Right? I get what you're exactly, saying. it's, it's entirely thing. feasible because uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not that hard. You know, it's uh, it is just a, and in fact, you might use the wire rather than the printed electronics for that, um, just to sure. make a coil. Um, but yeah, no, that there's absolutely no reason why why not. You can make all these these complicated uh, shapes on a, on a on a surface, and we are doing some on the defense side uh, around uh, antenna. Quite a lot of work on that. Yeah, so antenna is just, of course, a super exciting thing, especially if you have this RF blocking polymer stuff, or you can, um, you could do that. And and do you think that in and of itself, because that's a very different market, right? Or is it kind of also similar? You know, are you making like a PC? 
Because you're saying, oh, we just sell to these guys. We don't have to customize these things. We don't address the market. That's what the guys. But secretly, of course, if you're going to be making like this super secret drone interior thing, or you want to make something that could make a whole bunch of different wires, harnesses, you know, from an architectural viewpoint, you w- would really have to kind of think about making a different machine. Or are you still trying to make like one unit for everything? Um, at the moment, uh, well, the all the you know the end effect is the machine can go and pick up you know the tool that it needs for the next job. So it it'll pick up the laser to, tool to to to, mach, to machine away the the print electronics, or it'll pick up the wiring head. All those heads are the same, whatever machine. So uh, the but the platform, the uh, you know the the five axis manufacturing cell, you could imagine that being at, at different sizes. But we did a little interesting test. This was, this was somebody who wanted a, a you know a million near field antenna. Um, just in, a, in an ATM. And so we said, okay, perhaps we could build you a very small machine that could do that, you know. It turned out it was much better to use our big one meter, you know, one, one meter uh, build volume and just have 50 of them working at one time. At the moment, our current machine is, is two and a half meters across. It weighs two and a half tons in it, and it's got a build volume of, a, of about a meter in diameter. So even for small parts, it's usually faster and quicker and cheaper just to put a very large number of parts in there. So you're not swapping the, the, the tools over. Uh, you know, we pick up a tool, use it to do all the all the all the wire. Pick up another tool, do, use it to do all the FDM printing, and then kick out all the fifty parts on a, on a on a on a platform. But we haven't ruled out making bigger machines. Um, so if you wanted to put, um, for example, the tailgate of a of a car in there, you would need something with a two meter build volume. So we might go up, but at the moment there doesn't seem to be any need to go down from that uh, that size. And then the other obvious thing is like, well, are you planning to add tool heads or more end effectors? Oh yes, so I mean that's the. I mean they're all got the same mount. They've all got the same control system, and so as time goes on, we're already working on the next version of our of our printed electronics uh, uh, technology, which is looking really exciting. Um, so yes, no, we will just keep we'll just keep adding on uh, uh, new technology as we, and, and release that as as we go on. Definitely. Can I get one with seven lasers, though? I really want one with seven lasers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want the green laser. There's quite a powerful laser. You don't want to be t- saying too yeah. close to this laser. <laughs> but And then another thing is, like, you guys are a British business, right? So on the one hand, I think it's it's a good time to be a British business doing what you're doing because a lot of government funding authorities are, like, into this. Okay, we're now cut off from uh, a lot of imported labor you know, it's going to be a little more self-sufficiency is going to be a little bit of a watchword. So on the one hand, that's good. But do you have any kind of negative effects of being outside the EU? Or is it or is it for you guys just a headwind because everyone's cognizant this is something that's really, really good for your country? No, it's a, it's a huge headwind, um, uh, mostly. There, there are very few upsides to it. I mean, one is security. I think if you're really worried about um uh, you know, trade war that, that might be looming with with China. You know, what are you going to miss most? It is actually going to be the thing that is going to really hurt first is this ability to make bits and pieces, not even complicated bits and pieces. But we've shipped all that out to China, and so there is that security aspect. So I think that is kind of on the on the back mind of of policymakers in in Britain and elsewhere. But no, next year uh, when we close our A series round, we are going to have to build. Uh, uh, get set up subsidiaries in the US and somewhere in the EU, because those are huge automation markets, much much bigger than uh, than the UK, and uh, it's much easier to, to to sell and have service teams and ultimately even manufacture in those territories. We're a big ap- ambitious company. We can't we can't grow to the point we want to grow just selling within the UK. There's no way. 
I haven't chosen where in America yet. So that's, I'm just I'd like somewhere with a somewhere with a good beach or uh, somewhere I can go skiing. I don't know. Somewhere nice. <laughs> I have some bad news for you. Delphi is in Indiana, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, uh, it, it depends on on because there are people that will help you with that. There are lots of people from lots of states and stuff that would love to talk to you about that kind of stuff. This is very and, true. And, and, and my, my last business in, was in, was based in the U.S. and that was at the Kennedy Space Center. I can't tell you how cool that was we were we could go down and watch the launches i was there for the very last landing of the space shuttle which was a real tearjerker so yes no that something like that would be really cool yeah totally nice totally nice okay and and so so you're a super ambitious company and you know you, you did mention that funding is very difficult so you know how are you approaching this are you approaching this we just have to need to be better at this funding game than anyone else or are you trying to be a little less well maybe less growth oriented but more profit oriented are you kind of like trying to generate cash and trying to you know go your own way a little bit well bootstrapping uh, so you know we if so we we've done quite well on the on the seed round we had a good seed round we're just hopefully going to close another one now but next year we want we would like a a, a bigger round i mean nothing stratospheric but a, but a pretty decent round next year and we can only do that if we got customer traction we've got to demonstrate that that customers are actually interested um uh, to be able to pull in uh, well you can always pull in more money but you you end up giving away too much of the of the percentage of the company and that's just painful for us so to get a good valuation at our a series round we need as many customers as possible so the, at the launch which was like a couple of months ago now it has gone very well. You know, we've had some of the biggest companies in the world, like Izaki and others, just pop up on our doorstep. They're bringing big uh, engineering teams to come and see us. So we're hopeful that between now and then, we can start to pull in some good good contracts with them and just show that what we're doing is really valuable to them uh, and get them as kind of references so, so that they'll tell the investors to put some money in. Doing business with these really large harnessing companies also is kind of like super replacing what they're already doing. And we found out in additive that's really difficult to kind of come up with this new thing like, hey, we have a completely different way. How are you overcoming that kind of institutional change or that kind of like, uh, you know, that kind of approach of like, hey, this is completely different? It's, uh, you know, boiling the frog. You've got to do it slowly. There's no, uh, so in other words, what we're setting up was we've got a series of machines that we've set up on our own site. Uh, we're just hiring another bunch of engineers to work on those machines to work with, with calling that our assessment center, our technical assessment center. And so we're, um, we're offering time on those machines to these big wiring harness companies so they can come in and they can do feasibility studies. They can then step to, okay, let's, let's do a prototype of, of something we're really interested in. Okay. All the way through to the point where, okay, now you need to make, you know, a thousand of these for us just to prove that the machine is, is reliable. So we're, we, we're going to step them through the process very, very gently. It, obviously, they pay for it, so it's a, it's revenue to us. And then at the end of that nine months or twelve months, whatever it takes for them to become comfortable, then uh, then they 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 start ordering the machines. So we we just got to we got to de-risk it for them. We're an early stage company. I mean, they've got to be sure that we're going to exist in uh, in you know a couple of years time if they buy a machine from us. So there's lots of risks for them that we've got to try and manage for them. Just started making the machines, right? You haven't. Have you sold any yet or not? Um, not in, not, not in, not in, uh, no, not in, not in seriousness. We've sort of given some right. away to some friendly people, but uh, no. Right. So that's not until next year. That's our, our plan. Also, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really good functional uh, prototype that we have that we can do everything we need on it. But it's not really a polished pebble of a machine that you'd be happy just giving to somebody and, and being sure. So over the next twelve months. We really do need to work with these uh, these customers to make sure it's exactly what they want. 
So they get we get that feedback from them to to make sure the software exactly operates in the way they expect, and the uh, and the hardware is is exactly tailored to their their requirements. And so this process of going through the technical assessment center works. You know, it gives us revenue. It matures our machine, and uh, and it and it steps the customers through their their long customer journey to the point which they're they're ready to to spend the big bucks. And what do you hope to achieve in the future? If we're looking like really forward to this, like okay, you you said okay, we we want to build a machine, and then we want to like you know go to different countries. Is that the vision, or is it, is it more complicated <laughs> than that? Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is to uh, it'd be run as a hardware as a service. So we we sort of have a subscription model, so people can buy uh, you know a package which gives them the software, the hardware, and then whatever services they require and training they require to be able to to run their machines. Um, and uh, you know, we're aiming. We've got this ambitious aim for the five six years. Will there be five hundred of these machines out there? We'll have revenues of a hundred million. That that's our that's our aim. Next year. Is to set up the subsidiaries in in Europe and uh, and America, and then after uh, the next fundraise, eighteen months after that, we'd like to find somewhere in the Far East, because that's also a huge automation market in Japan, Taiwan, or in, uh, in Korea, or all three. I don't know, but you know that those kinds of places, because that's going to be a, a you know a really important market for us ultimately. But we're not ready for it yet. May I suggest Singapore? Uh, Singapore, Singapore yeah, we're actually going to we're going to do a little trade show in Singapore later this year. That that could be really I will be exciting. there. <laughs> it's called dynamic. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so um, that sounds you know on the revenue side very very ambitious and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's going to be quite difficult. You think, or do you think you know, is this a market with competition? You said there is some competition, but you know, is there really, or is it a, mar- a competition market? Do you need to watch the other guys, or is it just like no, no, there's you know the competition. No one has this. Uh, no one has a technology solution. We just need to grow, grow, grow. No, there are lots of others. So the printed electronics market—I don't know if you've been following it—but it's it's exploded. There are so many players out there with beautiful technologies and different technologies. We think we've got a an important niche. We've got some good um, uh, patent protection behind it, um, but that whole part of it is growing and starting to eat into into the wiring harness market in generally. And then there are some interesting companies like um, it, it's Cell Link. I don't know if you've come across these guys. So this is flexible PCBs. It's an old, old technology, but they've invented some new manufacturing process to give it new life. And they've got hundreds of millions of pounds of investment from the car industry because they can uh, they can make a whole dashboard. And, they, and these flexible PCBs are then glued to the back of the uh, the dashboard. It takes out a lot of weight, takes out a lot of the uh, the complexity of the manufacturing. Um, so yeah, those those guys are, are, are kind of competitors to us. And and the other thing is, okay, hardware as a service. Okay, so I understand that your investors like it, but I come a lot of companies really don't like this hardware as a service thing, and it seems really expensive in the long run. They really want to own the equipment. I, you know, is that you know? I understand why you're doing this from an investor perspective, and then a kind of profit perspective that, that money rolling in every day, super nice. But you know, is there uh, you know are you finding like a lot of resistance there on that or not or not really? Do people think it's cheaper in the short term, and and they're more likely to do it? Do you think? It depends. <laughs> so, I mean, we found uh, actually a lot of the um, wiring harness companies do kind of like the security of it. It comes out of a different pot, um, and so some of them were were up for it immediately. It just it just seemed to be simple for them, um, but others are not. So others, we are definitely going to have to just sell machines as well, particularly into the defense market. You know, we sell a machine into Lockheed Martin, they will never see it again, and they'll lock it away in a room. So there are um, parts of the market that just want to to put it into capital. So we will be flexible, but our, our default model, if uh, if the customer is okay with it, is to is to continue to own the machine, take it back after three years, 
and give them a new machine is a bit like a mobile phone. We know the tech is going to change dramatically over over the period of three years. So why wouldn't you want to to trade it in and get the next whizziest you know bit of kit? So at the moment, it seems to be uh, mostly popular, but we're we're just sort of keeping an eye on it and uh, and making sure that every customer is comfortable with it. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Steve, I thought this was really great to, to learn about your startup. I think it's really awesome what you guys are doing, the production cell, the actual production technology that you're doing. It's okay that you use just a teeny weeny bit of additive in there, uh, but I think it could uh, still be like a really be a very, very exciting opportunity for you guys and for a lot of other people. So thanks a lot for being on the show today. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been great fun. Okay. And th- thank you for being on the show as well, Max. Always. Thank you for hosting, Joris. Anytime, anytime. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore